Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm sure my daughter graduating has nothing to do with all that. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The Bible simply says there in Ephesians 5, verse 18, I'm going to share with you a message that I've entitled, The Spirit Who Fills Us. Verse 18 says, And do not be drunk with, with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, let's pray. God, I thank you again for your word that we're able to look into today and in these next few minutes. Please use it mightily in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who poured out the Spirit, who makes it possible that we as sinful human beings can actually have God dwelling within us. Father, I thank you for that great truth. And I do again ask you now, Use your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Today we're going to talk about this spirit who fills us believers. Uh, Last week I called this under the influence and said that being spirit-filled is the need of the day. The question, really there's two or three questions that, that are begged to be asked here from this. The first one that I'm not going to deal with a whole lot today, we'll probably look into it next week. Is if I'm the question is if I'm not drunk with wine, then does that automatically mean that I am filled with the Spirit? All right, so uh, we'll look at that next week. Um, the a couple of other questions that we'll deal with today. The first one is this: uh, If the Spirit were not a part of our lives, what would be different? What would change if anything about our lives, publicly, privately, or among the church? If, if the Spirit's influence and power were no longer present, what would change? And then the third question is, do we really understand the need the church has for the Spirit in our lives? I doubt we do. I don't know if I do fully and if we do. But, you know, Job 34, 14 through 15 says, Elihu said this, if, if he would set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would not, and man would return to dust. In the book of Ephesians, we've seen several things already about the spirit. We've seen that the spirit seals and guarantees that the spirit um, is the spirit that seals us until the day of redemption. That uh, we that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. This that believers can be filled by the Spirit, that the uh, fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and that we can pray in the Spirit, we should pray in the Spirit, and that the Spirit has a sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, what I want to do uh, is give you a quick rundown of what the Spirit was like in the Old Testament, because that might be something that you have questions about, and I don't know that I will answer it fully here, but I do want to briefly talk about this. Because, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, the second verse of the Bible, there we see the Spirit of God. It says in verse 2 of chapter 1 in Genesis that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And then in Genesis 6, right before the flood, um, God says that, he he asks, will my spirit, or he says, my spirit will not always strive 
with man, or will not strive with man forever. In the book of Numbers, in the 20, uh, chapter 11, um, 29 through 32, Moses said this, when there was kind of an uproar about certain people prophesying, the Spirit of God coming upon them and prophesying, uh, Moses said, Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. That was a desire of Moses. Now, what did this look like further in the Old Testament? The book of Judges is really a good place to go to kind of get an idea of how the Spirit worked in the Old Testament. Because what we talk about here and what we know in the New Testament day is that the Spirit of God was poured out by Christ at Pentecost and the Spirit comes and indwells believers. The Spirit comes and and stays with us. He is our helper, as Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John, our paraclete who comes along beside and helps us, who leads us in truth. The Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But in the Old Testament, I'll give you some examples. Judges 3.10, about Othniel. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Chapter 6, verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. 11.29, then the Spirit came upon Jephthah. 13.25, Samson, the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. 14.16 with Samson, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart. Again, in three ver- a few verses later, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon. Uh, so, three times we see the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson mightily, and then he did amazing things. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6, with Saul... The Bible says, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. In chapter 10, verse 10, it says, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, him being Saul, and he prophesied among them. Then chapter 11, verse 6 of 1 Samuel. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. And then another example, in 1 Samuel 16, 14, 16, 13. uh, Samuel, when he anointed David as king, the Bible says there that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And then in the very next verse, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, from this uh, little uh, sampling, we get the idea in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God would come upon individuals, people who were called by God to perform certain tasks. The Spirit of God would suddenly come upon them and empower them to fulfill a task or to do something, and many times, um, uh, miraculous. Now, David prayed in Psalm 51.11 
after he had sinned with Bathsheba, he said, do not cast away your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David was a bit of a unique individual because the Spirit remained upon him from that time forward as we saw in 1 Samuel 16 verse 13. And when he had sinned, the thing that he was concerned about, one of the things that he was very concerned about was God taking away his spirit from him just as he took it away from Saul. He did not want that to happen. Now that's kind of as an individual thing, but it seems also in the Old Testament that the, the, the spirit of God was among the Old Testament Israel. The, the, the Spirit of God was working among them nationally. I'll give you an example of this. Um, as a matter of fact, if you want to turn there, Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. We'll start at verse 10. Isaiah 63, verse 10. We'll read 10 through 14. You'll see the Spirit of God mentioned about three times in this passage. All right, Isaiah 63, verse 10. It says, But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So He turned Himself against them as an enemy, and He fought against them, them being Israel. Then He remembered the days of old, Moses and His people, saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the sight, I'm sorry, by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble? Verse 14, as a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. It seems as though the Spirit of God was among the people of Israel um, in a special way, certainly much different than he was with the other nations of the world. So that. That's just a quick rundown, and I know that there's probably some other um, questions that might come up when it comes to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, but that is a quick summary of what seems to be going on there. Maybe we'll look into more of that later on. As we look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, uh, we saw, first of all, that he said, be filled, be filled. And I shared this with you last week, but I want to kind of put it in front of you again. That this is in the present tense. Be filled is in the present tense, and it means um, go on being filled. It is something that continually happens. It presently is something that we should be, um, that should be happening in our lives. The second thing is we see that it's passive voice. That means, and I... Spelled done wrong, apparently, but uh, it's not done to the believer, but it's done to the believer. It is passive, so it happens to us. We can't make the Spirit fill us, but we, 
we are people who, who prepare ourselves and make ourselves vessels for the Spirit to fill. And then number three, we see that it's in the imperative mood. The imperative mood means that it shows urgency. It shows an authoritative command. It is imperative that you do this. It is important that you do this. So that verb, be filled, is in the present passive imperative. It is so important for us as believers. And we need to uh, understand that uh, this is a, a big deal for us. And we tend to we tend to get scared away sometimes with such scriptures uh, maybe as this because we do not want to become like, you know, like charismatic or mystical or, or weird. Or Lord forbid that we'd be moved to do something crazy like raise our hands in a worship service. We would not want the Spirit to fill us in such a way to cause us to do something like that because we wouldn't want to be labeled like Baptocostal or anything Along those lines. But the Bible's real clear here that we are a people who are to be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's not like at the football game where the cheerleaders lead the crowd and saying, We've got Spirit. Yes, we do. We've got Spirit. How about you? Uh, nothing like that. Or where the cheerleaders say, We got Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that kind of thing. This is the Spirit of God that he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Let's learn a few things here about the Spirit. This Spirit who fills us. We see, secondly, it is with the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. Not drunk with wine, not with some other controlling influence in our lives, but the Christian is a person who should be filled with, with the Spirit of God. The first thing we see here, and I've given you some references in Ephesians. I want you to know about this Spirit who fills us. This Spirit is holy. In chapter 1, verse 13, we find there that He is the Holy Spirit of promise. He is holy. That means He is set apart. There is none other like Him. He is the Spirit of of God. In John 4, we find that God is spirit. The second thing we see is that, and I crammed all these into one slide, is that the spirit was promised. How and when was the spirit of God promised? We see that the spirit was promised by by Jesus. And John the Baptist said, you know, he said things like, I baptize you with water. But there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Spirit. So this Spirit is promised. But not only there, we see in the book of Ezekiel that the Bible says, I think it's uh, chapter 36. Let me jump over there real quick. Ezekiel 36. He says in verse 27, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So Christ promised that the Spirit would come. Uh, The Old Testament prophets promised that the Spirit would come. And so when the Spirit came, we find that He was and is the Holy Spirit of promise. Second thing we see, or third thing that we see here, 
is that the Spirit is a guarantee or a gift. Now, combine those two together because guarantee is that guarantee of our inheritance. In Ephesians 1, verse 13, I've told you before that it is that earnest, like putting earnest money down. It says there in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So he is this guarantee, and I put in quote in a parentheses there, he's like a, a gift that is given. This seems to be very clear in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, here's what the apostle said after the Holy Spirit had come upon the first Gentile believer, uh, Cornelius, and when he is saved. And after there is this gathering to discuss what has gone on, and Peter is called into question about what he has done, here's the result. In um, verse 16, it says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So the Spirit is a guarantee, it is a gift that has been given to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you be Jew or Gentile. Number four, the Spirit is one. This is something that stands out in the book of Ephesians very clearly. If you will take and turn to chapter 2, verse 18 in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 18. You know, Paul writing to these Gentiles in Ephesus, these ones who were, uh, many of them likely worshipers of the goddess Diana or Artemis, there in Ephesus. Paul writes to them, he tells them in verse 12 that they were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He goes on in verse 14 to talk about Christ being our peace. In verse 15, that he has abolished in his flesh the enmity between races. And that's where... That's where the cure to racism is found. It is in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. In verse 16, it says that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. And now verse 18, for through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. The Spirit is one. He is not a Spirit, a Spirit for the 
Gentiles and then a spirit for the Jews, but the spirit of God is one. And for the believer, he unites that believer together in the body of Jesus Christ, the one body. Now, we have other examples in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. There we uh, see in Ephesians 3, 5 through 7, it says, "...which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets." What? Just the first part of verse 6, "...that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body." Now, if you'll look over at chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes to them, and he beseeches them in verse 1 to walk worthy of the calling with which they were called. And they are to do that in verse 2, in all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, what are they doing? They are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why do they strive and why do we strive to keep the unity of the Spirit? Because the Spirit is one. And then you go down to verse 4. There is one body and there is one what? One Spirit. So the Spirit is one. Now let's go to the next point. Number 5. The Spirit is God. This Spirit that Paul is saying that we ought to be filled with is the Spirit of God. In chapter 2 verse 22. We see there that it says, you know, we're being built, uh, being fitted together. We're growing to this holy temple in the Lord, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's what we are, not only individually, but as a church, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And then you see in chapter 3, verse 16, where he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with his with might through his spirit in the inner man. It is the spirit of God that Paul is telling us that that God is telling us that we ought to be filled with. Not the drunken stupors of this world that are out there and all around us. We become intoxicated by all of these things in the world when the thing that ought to be filling us is the Spirit of God. And we wonder why that Spirit is grieved when we, when we don't seek Him, when we don't forgive, when our communication is corrupt, when we harbor anger and bitterness, unforgiveness, when we act like the world rather than acting like a child of God. Why is He grieved? Because He's holy. He's been promised. He's a gift. He is one. He is God. And that God indwells us and fills us to do His will. You know, in the, in, the, in the Bible, the Bible talks about the Godhead. The Godhead is the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Spirit. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, we see that the Father chose us. We see that the Son redeemed us. And we find there that the Spirit seals us. They are all God. In Matthew 28, we find there that the Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name singular. Name is singular. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's not in the names of them, but in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, God, the Holy Spirit, is indeed God. Number six is we see that the Spirit is powerful. I have to be quick on these, but we saw in chapter 3, verse 16, that we are strengthened with all might according to His that's Colossians, according. Uh, we are strengthened with all in the inner man. In the inner man, the Spirit of God is able to strengthen us. Dear, dear Christian, what, what is it in your life right now that is a besetting sin? It's something that you just don't know if you can get past it. You don't know if there's any hope. You don't know if things are ever going to change. If you are a believer and the Spirit indwells you, the thing you should seek to overcome your addiction, your besetting sin, whatever it is you want to call, is the filling of the Spirit of God because He is holy. Holy, holy. What do we need as a church is we need to be filled by the Spirit of God rather than letting ourselves be controlled and under the influence of so much else in this world. And the cool thing about this Spirit is, like I said earlier, He has a sword. And that sword is the Word of God. Chapter 6, verse 17. And what does the Word of God do? Not only is it an offensive weapon as we put on the armor of God, but that Word of God, you know what it does for for you and for me? It discerns the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It is able to cut to the joints and marrow of our souls. You see, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit for the Spirit of God. And He is able to take that and transform our lives. We've got to believe that. He does it. Number seven is this. The Spirit is a person. That's why He can be grieved. He is a person. Number eight, the Spirit is sovereign. I don't know if I like the wording I put for these last two. But He's sovereign. He's, this is passive. It's passive. You can't make Him do anything. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but, it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows as it wishes. The Spirit of God moves as He wishes. 
He is sovereign. You cannot control Him. It is the Spirit of God who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God is sovereign. But He's also submissive. This is the amazing thing about God and His Spirit indwelling the believer. You see, the Spirit indwells us. And as we, it seems like, as we present ourselves to the Lord, this Spirit who was poured out and indwells believers comes and He fills believers to live for Him, to live for Christ, and to glorify God. Next week, we're going to pick up here and talk about what does that practically look like. And we're going to find it right here in this text in the following verses because there's four participles that follow this, this uh, command to be filled with the Spirit. And we're going to dig into that next week and see exactly what that looks like. Do you have the Spirit of God If you do not have the Spirit of God, you are none of His. But if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God. The Bible has told us that He has promised to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Christ has bore your sins on the cross, that that man, that dead man was buried, but that that man who was once dead rose from the dead. That is the gospel. And he was seen alive. Do you believe that? And are you trusting in that with all of your heart for your eternal salvation? It's not the righteousness of Jesus plus my righteousness. It's not the excellence of Jesus plus my experience. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves sinners. Do you believe? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your spirit that you promised to us. Father, you you actually let us be filled with your spirit. And I thank you for that Holy Spirit that indwells your people Fill us, God, that we might be used by You however You would use us. Lord, that we would be the people that You have called us to be. Thank You, God. There's nothing better than you could give, that You could give us than Yourself. You gave us your, Yourself by giving us Your Spirit. I pray we would learn... Be filled with your spirit. And Father, I thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't want y'all to think that there's anything really mystical about that because I'm not trying to tell you that there is. Next week, we'll see what those things look like in the church's life.